We're back. How are you, Mike? I'm good. Thanks for making the drive all the way out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Thankful for... Uh, Lack for the, of fires. Yeah. <laughs> for the road crew clearing the brush. It was windy on the way up here. Yeah, man. Went out and there was just... It looked like somebody had come and done some serious gardening. All the leaves were perfectly pushed away. and But then you looked over and there was a bunch of tarps that were ripped in half. And I was like, geez, it must have been crazy up here while I was gone. Well, you're, you're looking at, for those of you listening and watching, especially for those watching, you're looking at the tiny version of Broken City Studios that exists up on the mountaintops of the Himalayas. Julian, <laughs> California. <laughs> we have what you call questions, some listener questions out there. Okay, let's start with Nikki's question. What's a good way of overcoming the fear of sharing your artistic work? For me, overcoming the fear, the fear is, is rooted in some, there's almost like this little cluster of reasons for the fear, like... Uh, ground zero moments like are you are you seeking validation so if you don't get it you're afraid of how you'll feel which is an interesting one fearing your own feelings about what other people think or are you afraid of you know being like imposter syndrome are you afraid of like being found out that your that your work is crap and you're stupid you know like catastrophizing the idea of sharing your work and getting a reaction that confirms your worst insecurities about yourself or imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. And are you scared of having success and what that means? Cause then there's more pressure. Are you, cause that, those are like fear of failure things, but fear of success is very real and often is like a lot deeper and more pernicious and, um, subconscious maybe like what the people that i've met that are afraid of actual success they like they're amazing you do great work with them and then they get to the point where it really counts and they actually don't want it they're afraid of taking it to that next level because they don't really know what the next level is going to look like so to overcome it there's a thing there's a chapter in my book where I talk about it a lot and um, I've shared it a lot, but I don't think I've shared it on the podcast, but I call it the circle theory. So like you've heard me say it, but this is for you, Nikki. Um, I feel like the, a fulfilling artistic journey is, is one where you start out and you put a hundred percent commitment into expression. So you have the initial idea or motivation, you work your way through it. You try this, you try that you're in, sort of a creative right brain space. And then you kind of back up a little bit, get logical and kind of look at it, make sure you love it and go through all those things. Like you said, like the preparation stuff and also just giving it your best and um, making sure you don't fall victim to things like, wow, I did this syndrome, which I think is huge. When you're creating something from nothing, there's this feeling of, oh my gosh, I made a music song. <laughs> Like from nothing. Do you even understand? There was no song and now there's a song. It must be the best song ever because it feels like that when you do it. But you have to sort of get, that's almost like a happy little childish part of your ego that's so proud of yourself. Um, and then you could find yourself showing people that and have it causes a whole other 
set of dominoes to fall. But let's say you've gone through that process. That's what I would consider like the expression part. So it's like halfway around the circle of fulfillment. And the other half is the connection half. So that that half can be like rooted in connecting to yourself or having one person dig it and like kind of give you that reaction like, ooh, whatever you just made is hitting me in a certain spot. And when you feel that, it's it completes the circle. And the problem is when you have fear rooted in any of those like areas of insecurity or seeking validation or trying to serve your ego or using music to get money or using music to get attention or fear of success, fear of failure, all those things. If that poisons and sort of infiltrates that expression side and you don't stay like really true to what your, um, your goal is, your motivation, your intent, I would say is the best word for it. And you keep digging. If you stop, like here's an example, you go through 90%, and you've been expressing yourself super honest, and you hit the 90% point, and then you go like, what are my friends going to think? Okay, maybe I should tweak it a little bit, because I know they like this and that, and this particular thing is more my thing, but I can't see them digging it. You make little tweaks to the final, like... It's the lizard brain. Yeah, it's the little, it's the deepest fear stuff, but it's all connected to very, like, real things that you're afraid of happening. So you make those tweaks, and it's really, it's often just the frosting and the cherry on top that you, you tweak these things. And then you go out, you share this work. Let's say you do share it with that friend you were thinking about for that last 10%. Then they go, eh. yeah, it's good. You know, you get that half-hearted, almost like the, the um, art response of a, that's a that's equivalent to like a courtesy laugh. <laughs> you get the courtesy pack on the pat on the back or whatever, and you're like, oh, I wish I would have stuck to my guns. So the problem is, is that now you go back and you make those same. Let's go back at the same scenario. You make the same tweaks, and you try to impress your friend, and then you go and you show the friend, and they're like, Oh my gosh, I love it. That's the best thing you've ever done. Oh my gosh. That's great. You're the best. You're going to be huge and famous. The next time you go to create, that's now poisoned your process because now you need to remember, okay, what exact compromises did I make on that last 10%? Maybe I should start making them at 50%. And then before you know it, I think it's inevitable that you will start making those compromises from the moment you begin. And then you're lost. Your authenticity is lost. The expressionistic intent is poisoned with all the second guessing and all this stuff and you'll never feel that fulfillment in a really pure way so i think it's really important to just go all the way through 100 percent expressing your truth whatever that is show who you want to show and then when they hear it you're gonna feel there's this feeling inside like okay i did my part and now it's not it's not about me anymore it's for them and People either like it or they don't. It's for them or it's not for them. And you can complete the circle by it being connecting for yourself. Or um, It might not be, too, that your audience is your friends. I mean, I've dealt with that a lot in my life where I have people that I connect to in tons of different ways, but my music just doesn't happen to resonate with them. And it's like, it's been weird for me. And I... It's helped me look at what my music is and what it isn't, but it's also, it, there's a loss there, but I've had to really build up 
thick skin in that area, which it, it's been honestly difficult because I love to connect people through my music. And I feel like there's a part of me that is missing in my personality that's there in my music. So if a friend or family member doesn't get it um, or respond like I hope they would, there's this feeling of loss, but I've had to just realize that if if it's true for me, then it's somebody's going to dig it who has a similar inner sort of experience as me. And I've had that confirmed in, in some really cool ways, just from people I don't know, reaching out and, and being cool enough to like, just kind of say something about my work. And those are the moments that are like, ah, so cool. But you mentioned another aspect. Well, of it. I just going to comment on what you said. I think um, your music specifically, um, sometimes it takes, it takes a while to sink in to get the full depth of it. I know that there's, mm-hmm. there's a, a few songs actually that we're, we're trying to, um, we're trying to use for, for Broken City uh, percussion this year that, I mean, I've known about them for a long time and I, I never, they never hit me as hard as they've hit me in the last month. Like just really diving in deep and trying mm-hmm. to, trying to extract all the things that I think will uh, resonate and, and translate well to the floor. Mm. Um, so I think there, there's an aspect there too, is that sometimes whatever you're creating isn't, it's, it's so subtle that it's not something that you're going to get on a first, on a first listen or a first viewing. It's interesting that you say that because I had, there was a little moment that helped me personally, which was I think the more specific I dig into a feeling and, and a thought and and the more true I make it for me, the more specific it is. Um, I already said specific. Uh, the more it really becomes music that has to meet somebody else where they're at. And they have to be somewhere in that same psychological, emotional, intellectual realm or experiential, whatever it is, as opposed to, I feel like there's kind of, the two polar opposites are music that takes you where it is and music that meets you where you are. Yeah. Or you could even amend the statement of it's not for them. It's not for them yet. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, especially when I think music is extremely autobiographical and really introspective and and its purpose is to sort of hash out some things inside and make, make order out of the chaos. And then here it is if somebody's not in that place, the song is just going to be a song that's maybe feels a little too heavy right for right now or whatever, but then it can maybe when you reach that similar kind of space, which is why I always feel like I'm writing songs for people in cars. I was going to comment. It's funny you say cars. A, a car is where I have listened to most of your stuff on a first. Oh Yeah. First listen, I guess a first experience. Well, usually, of text your, it to you or something. Yeah. yeah, it's it's in it's in the car, and that's terrible. It just, I maybe this is just my age, it's but terrible. I, I love sitting. Oh, in the sweet spot of two like beautiful speakers. You spent some time on your hi-fi rig. <laughs> <laughs> I love the uh, car, but that's a good point. Yeah. Well, so you like I, to have no distractions, nothing you have to do. Well, I mean, you, you love the car, probably listening to current projects that you're involved in or whatnot. Cause I can do that too. I can listen to my own stuff and be like, okay, yeah, I need to tweak that. All right, tweak that. All right. That's good. That's good. But when I'm listening to somebody else's stuff, 
Um, oh, for the first time. Maybe. Yeah. Well, even if it is the first time in a car, at some point I would like to have zero distractions, like phone is off, sitting sitting where I need to be sitting in my, my living room and just listening. And That's, that, so to get somebody to do that is, it's not always going to happen right away. It might not ever happen. And right. it's the, the person, the person creating the work shouldn't be hung up on other people's reaction, I guess is the moral of the story. Cause you That's can't, true. you can't control all the variables. Yeah. You got to let go. And then the other, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say about the, just the, Nikki's question is just um, moving on to the next project is a good like healer, healer, palate cleanser. Yeah. So like you just leave it, header. leave it in the rearview mirror. Just go and make something else. Move on to the next thing, and uh, maybe that thing that you you left you know behind you, um, maybe it hits later. Yeah, you know what? And there's a bit of a myth that. I don't know. It's a delicate balance between being somebody who just embraces where where you, you embrace where you are now, and you do your best, and you finish. You finish it to your best, the best of your ability. Maybe you decide whether or not you're going to share it with the entire world or just your circle of friends. That's a different thing. If you're still in a developmental stage, maybe as an artist or something, you're not ready for the marketplace, and you have to be honest with yourself about that. But embracing the fact that life is just you know the classic quote life is what happens when you're making plans life is what happens when you work on one song forever and <laughs> and don't release anything or whatever it is like like you said i think being a finisher give everything you got and then put a period on that sentence move on to the next thing that's growth whereas i think some it's easy to get into that place where like no i want to use this work i want to grow this until i'm fully formed like this is going to be my song that's the ultimate song or my show that's the ultimate show or whatever it might be. And that's that's a fear of failure syndrome, you know. And I've known people that do that, really talented people who are a little bit too withholding or a little bit too perfectionistic to the point where it's like maybe maybe you don't need to work on that song for more than a year, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's, it's a bummer too because it can really... I think more than anything, I'm going to make a pretty bold, broad statement here. But from what I've seen, there's so many talented musicians with something to say. Now, there's not like, they're not just flying out of the, out of doorways everywhere, but there are more than you'd think, maybe on the local level. And I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of you have seen that. Like, oh, I have a friend who's amazing. I don't know why they're not famous or whatever. But I, one of the things I've seen that's a fatal flaw is some psychological hang-up. One little fatal flaw that kind of like prevents them from putting their work out there or some fatal flaw in the insecurity area or they try to, be, they try to act like more than they are, or whatever it is. And I'll be honest, I completely had that with my solo music. It meant, I wouldn't, it's hard to say too much to me, but I think I would say, it meant too much to me in some ways to where I was so concerned with people getting it and getting me that I kind of would strangle the thing that people who were trying to help me or I don't know. I just got this weird vibe. It felt so personal and revealing and I didn't, 
didn't want to be rejected and I hadn't worked that stuff stuff out but in my career I was much less personally like attached I had a partner who shared half the burden of the of whatever criticism came in or whatever and that became I kind of had these two versions of myself that were like placebo and <laughs> it was like two testing things it was like okay here's when you care so much that ugh, you, everything has to be exactly perfect and my life I feel like my life depends on whether or not somebody likes it or whatever. And then there's this other area. It's like, ah, do the best I can and the chips fall where they may. And that's the area where doors tended to fly open more. And I got more, things made more sense. Now there are other factors. Obviously my music isn't very super hyper commercial. And in a lot of times I was in my career, I was just doing whatever, whatever was there following the path of least resistance to career. But one of the other things that you you mentioned when we had our little technical glitch was the concept of um you know when you're in a recording situation you have total control mm-hmm. you know and and time you have more time at least to like fix things it's not here it is and, and you got on to it's a not, really cool path right it's not in real time it'd be like the equivalent equivalent of you doing a live show and then that's what it was. Okay, so you and then maybe like a guitar cable doesn't work, and so your your own throat doesn't work, <laughs> and you're in a situation where, um, oh, but you know you didn't hear it the way it was supposed to be, and all oh, that thing went wrong, and I had to take it down an octave because I just you know my voice wasn't working that night. You know what I mean? And stand back on the poison <laughs> soul. Yeah, dude, that you're hitting on a subject that it's like my nemesis subject because. Partially because I I um I really love recording. It's it's the it's the painting of music as opposed to the dancing maybe of music or something. It's you can just paint over and paint over and you can you can sculpt it and then when it feels like it accurately represents what you want to say, you finish it. And live performance is such a different animal. And like you said, what did you say earlier? You said that ninety percent of the time it's not the intended, right? And it, the goal is that that uh, intended final product, I guess. Yeah. By the time you get to the to the end of the the season, it's you know the the final performances um, that you're you're hitting on all cylinders, and that uh, um, it's it's within enough of a window of exactly what you intended that it's pretty consistent by that point. But as far as like just leading up to that point, like when you're the season ends in mid April, mm-hmm. um, some groups start performing uh, in January. So you've got, you know, January, February, March, you got this building up. It's, it's nowhere near where it's going to be in mid April. And so to that, if you're not careful, I mean, that can, that's like that releasing the verse and, like well, releasing the verse in January and yeah. the verse and the chorus in February, and or even <laughs> worse, it's releasing the whole song, but like a crappy the demo. guitar player hasn't tuned and the the drummer is missing a stick, you know. Eek. <laughs> so it's depending on your your design process, it could be, you know, completion by chunks, or it could be the whole thing's out there, but it's one dimensional, and you're building dimensions as you go through. Right. So regardless, it can be a big blow to the to the ego. If you if you let it get to you, like 
not every show is going to be perfect. There's going to be, you know, things that go wrong, power is going to go out or, you know, somebody's mm-hmm. going to trip. Um, and so to keep your head in the right place, um, especially if you are one of the individuals that's part of the creative process, you need to keep your head clear of all that and not, not let it affect you. So that's, Again, what? maybe maybe another another sort of uh, short answer to the question is just create healthy narratives that that work for you. I don't right. think there's anything physical. There's no physical routine that you can do to get over fear. I think it's 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 not a it's physical a, routine, but I do think it's a um, there's a self awareness um, treadmill you can get on <laughs> that can be part of your thing, like just sort of analyzing what. Am, am I operating out of insecurity? Am I operating out of a uh, overwhelming need for validation? Those kind of things can, I think, be really helpful in lowering your fear of showing people music is just kind of get that stuff out of the way and just do your best. Give out something honest. Don't pander. Don't be cliche. I like that. Give out something honest. It's good. Yeah. It's almost the... It's the... Uh, uh, the defense to uh, to those types of fears and feelings. Is yeah. That, well, it's true. It's honest. Yeah. What else can I do? What yeah. do you want? And I think a good little tool that I've that has helped me is, um, and I may have mentioned it before. I tend to repeat myself like an old senile grandpa, but the idea of low resolution versus high resolution. And, you know, when it comes to creative ideas and how we think about translating what's inside onto, you know, a lyric, you know, a melody, music, whatever it might be that you're, that you're doing in music or art is it's easy to phone it in by using a cliche or, um, selling yourself short by not digging deep enough or being, uh, as unique as you possibly can. And that's like, you know, if I were to just actually sing, I love you in a song or your smile is like the sunshine or something that's just been thrown around a million times. That's a pretty low resolution way of saying that now because it's been overdone. So there better be something pretty amazing happening everywhere else in that song to support that or you've set it up with irony or, you know, there's a, there's a famous um, Natasha Bedingfield song called these three words. And I think she decided, I'm going to say, I love you in a song so many times that it's actually, you know, unique and quirky. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. That's that the song. It's called these three words. I love you. So she wrote like the, the epitome of the tongue in cheek. I love you song. And, that's a cool high resolution way of dealing with something that's sort of low resolution. I just sorry, I'm laughing. I just thought of a joke. What? <laughs> <laughs> it was a trivia question. Uh, when did Paul McCartney write silly love songs? You know, people are sitting there going, "Oh, 1977, I think, is when that album came out." 77. It's like no, 1962, 1963, 1964, 1965. It's been done and done and done and done and done. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So thinking of it in terms of resolution, like megapixels, like if everything you're doing is like a one megapixel picture, you know, it's pretty grainy and not very real. 
as opposed to like a zillion megapixel would be the ultimate condensed high resolution version of what you want to say. And, you know, it's, it's just a good way. It's helpful for me because it's like a little policeman (laughs) in your head when you're doing something. It's like, is this as high resolution as I can go? And it's a fun process to go on. Like how, how dense can you make it with, with honesty? Um, Let's move on to the second half of her question because there were multiple parts. This seems a little personal. Let's see here. When are you and Natalie going to do a show? (laughs) (laughs) I miss hearing you both live. Um, That's a good question. And every now and then I, I, there's like, there's little murmurs and rustlings in the, (laughs) in the bushes about like, Natalie wanting to sing again or do something with, you know, the natures was her project and with uh, myself, her and Scott Hera. And um, whenever she sings like in the kitchen or something, I'm like, man, I can't believe that's it. I forget sometimes, but yeah, we'll have to force her to do it. And as far as shows, I've sort of broken the ice a little bit on that recently. I sang a song at Concordia university after, after speaking there. And then after that, Mike asked me to sing this Saturday. Yeah, this Saturday. Yeah, so I might be doing that unless I back out and get the flu. I'm starting to feel a little sick. Nope. <laughs> um, I'd love to do more of it. And actually, y- you touched on a subject that hits a nerve. <clears throat> and the reason why I did sing at Concordia was because I didn't want to be a stupid hypocrite. Because I was asked to sing a couple months ago when the when the speaking engagement was booked and I said nah I'm kind of on hiatus slash retirement from live performance because of all the things we talked about I don't like feeling the loss of things not being at their ultimate level and I'm just not it hasn't been my focus and I feel like I owe it to myself and to whoever's listening to be absolutely on my game to the level that I can achieve hopefully and I really hate myself when I don't do that. <laughs> if I perform and it's not that, then it takes me days and days, if not weeks to get over. It just haunts me. So, but I was going there to speak about breaking through your fears and, and, and the fears of validation and fears of success and failure and insecurities. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, I can't, I just can't be the hypocrite. And then that day, Steve Young, who's the uh, head of the program over at Concordia, um, got a couple of his students to like send me a message, please come sing. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> he pulled out the big guns. So I went and did it and I'm really glad I did. And it was, it, it reminded me how much I love doing it and I miss it and that I need to stop being such a wuss. So hopefully soon, Nikki. What has been the most, book a house party. <laughs> I want to do some of those. I'll come to your house and sing. I'll sing for sausage. What has been the most frightening professional leap you've ever taken? Ooh, this is good. I like that. Do you have one in your head? No, that actually stumped me. Professional the most leap. Frightening professional leap. A professional leap. crawl. <laughs> uh, oh, maybe maybe the the tour I went on. Oh yeah, that's a good story. My my one. seven months of rock. Rock stardom. Okay, so this is interesting. Back in the early 1800s, 
No, this was, I don't know what it was, late 90s or early 2000s? It was, um, you're talking about the, it was 97 is David, when you, when David you first, yeah, you first addressed or you you gave me the uh, it was that the CD wow okay yeah. so I started writing songs in like ninety five ninety six and that was a huge turning point in my life and then I started to sort of perceive myself as and also have motivations and goals and focus that was all built around writing songs and producing music and doing it for myself but also other people and I was just my drive had changed from drumming being my life to to that to drumming being in support of that life and but i was still doing lots of drum gigs i mean for the next whatever it was 8 years i'd be professional drummer but doing that stuff on the side so i got offered i think it was a chance to audition but it was sort of somebody was already in what was it um the band name yeah no no, no. the band name was novocaine but there was yeah. somebody in the band that had invited me, I think. Bill Bischke. Might have been Bill, yeah. Rest in peace, Bill. Yeah. Um, and so it was sort of one of those situations where like, if you come audition, it's likely you'll get the gig. And I was like, whoa, this is so weird. I don't want to do it. And this was, the band was called Novocaine, but the lead singer was a guy named David Holliday who was a French-American? Is that right? No, he's French. Just flat, straight up French? Straight up French. Okay, and his dad was like the Elvis of France back in the day. Yeah, Johnny Halliday. He <clears> actually <throat> just passed away, I think, last year. Oh, wow. And David Halliday was... It was weird because it was sort of late late to the party grunge rock alternative. It was a little bit past when that was maybe the thing, but I remember hearing the record and going like, dude, this is really good. It was on another level, and I, I almost felt a little intimidated about it, but I just was like, this is not the... First of all, I kind of... I'm not... I've never really been drawn towards touring, slightly afraid of it, but it was more my focus, so... Actually, this wasn't the tour. This was just... Was it just shows? It, it was just the band looking for a drummer. Okay. Yeah, But it felt... Point. There was something about it that felt a little bit bigger than anything I'd ever done. Well, because the they, they were on... Described. They were on Merc Mercury. Okay, that's what it was. Major yeah. label thing. Okay, the tour came later. But I just remember going, wow, and Mike, you know, being a few years older than me and my mentor, and I was always a huge fan of your drumming and sort of had this little feeling like you downplayed your own playing. And I always was like, what are you talking about? So I'm like, Mike, do you want to do this? Like, I'd love to give him your number. What's your memory from there? Because it's very vague in my head. You handed me the, the CD mm -hmm. and gave me the the contact and the date time and the location of the audition and apparently you had contacted bill who's in the band bass player uh -huh. um <clears throat> and told him that you weren't coming that you were sending one of your buddies who's at awesome. the same at the same level as you are <laughs> <laughs> and so bill was pretty laid back i i didn't know this until later because I, I hadn't met him yet but um he's like yeah okay cool Sounds good. And I went home, memorized the whole CD. I had these little cheater notes. Um, and uh, I got all the little kicks in there, all the little upbeat accents. I, I made sure all the, the nuances were there. Um, and I drove to North Hollywood for the audition. 
I met Bill in the lobby of the uh, rehearsal facility. And, Do you remember uh, how you felt? Oh yeah, I was pretty nervous. Really? I can't like the today. Today's mic would not do that. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> Ended up so, being awesome, didn't it? You were thinking something good. Yeah, yeah, it was a cool life experience. But uh, I, I remember meeting Bill in the uh, in the lobby, and he just said, "Hey, man, there's been a million guys come through here, and they all play like wussies." Like just oh. you just beat the crap out of the drums, and I I play hard just yeah. naturally. I I dig in. Yeah, I'm a, I'm like a on drum set. I'm more of a two four guy. Like I don't eh. I don't nuance. I just crack two and four. <laughs> and I'm a huge you know Stone Temple Pilots fan. So the the record to me sounded like Stone Temple Pilots and Pink Floyd all in one. Yeah, with a touch of Nirvana maybe. Yeah, yeah. Some of the, the worst part of the albums was probably more Nirvana, <laughs> uh, but but uh, so I went in there and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna beat the crap out of these drums, and that's a good feeling when so you're nervous just, and you get to yeah. beat something. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just I I hit hard, and uh, all 140 pounds of me um, back then, <laughs> <laughs> a little more now, um, and. Uh, and I remember bleeding all over the drums and I was trying to hide it. Oh, that's rock and roll, baby. Well, I didn't want them to think like, oh, he never drums like this. He's faking it. <laughs> he has no so calluses. Like, yeah, it's like, oh man, it's no, I really do. I, I really do drum like this. Uh, I've just been writing cadences for 10 years. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, I bled all over the drums and um, I nailed every single one of those those weird like, there's a three, four bar in the middle of a tune or there's an upbeat, you know, and a four kick, like one spot in the tune. And I nailed all those little things, all the nuggets that if I were just plowing through an audition, kind of not knowing the material that you would have missed. And I just, I hit them all. Isn't it cool to, when you find out something about yourself that you can rise to the occasion or thrive under pressure when, I mean, you can go in with so much like, I'm going to, I don't, what if I blow it? Da, da, da. And then you get there and there's, doot, there's like this little switch that turns on. It's like, no, like not today. You know, like I think what really did you helped, have that? Do you feel that? Do you remember feeling that? I don't think so because I had nothing to lose. Like I didn't care. I was already, I was already building. I mean, it's pretty early, I would say. But isn't that the mechanism for nailing it? Is you have to, you're so prepared that you're like, you, I don't care. I, I guess, yeah. I don't but, know. I, I, I see that a lot in MMA. But I was thinking, I, I, I was building a world for myself in the marching arts. And, okay. Oh, it wasn't, and, your life didn't depend on this gig. Right. And, you know, actually back then, I didn't, I didn't even realize I was building this thing with the marching arts. I was just, I knew that I was heavily involved in it. I had a lot of responsibility and was teaching and writing shows. And, and uh, I was doing this quirky little novelty audition thing. And, um, so what, I, after you're done with, and your hands are bleeding... What? <laughs> so Bill does anybody notice? Yeah, Bill is looking at me every time I would hit a, you know, one of those like weird kicks. You know, like there's Bill seven, is so eight, cool, man. Seven eight bar in the middle. One of my know. favorite bass players, by the way, that ever lived. He just he yeah. looks back at you and becomes one with your kick drum. Right. Ugh. Anyway, so he was giving you that love. Yeah, like he would. He would just spin around, kind of look at me, and be like. He gave has me his, the nod. <laughs> he had he has he has he had one of the best bass faces. We say had because he passed away tragically. But um yeah. 
he had the best bass face, man. Dude, it's a funny story about that. I was on tour with uh, with Blue Coats. Um, I taught Blue Coats from 2009 um, to 2013, and I can't remember what year he passed away. I hope I'm getting this right. I don't think it was before that. Do you remember what year he passed away? I believe it was in the 2009-10. So zone. it wasn't bef- it wasn't 06 or 07. I don't think so. Cuz I remember it, Gannon and I reconnected at the end of 2010 and I feel like we talked about it as being something that had really recently happened him ex- telling me the story, but well, anyways, I, it was around that time. Yeah, so I, I think I'm remembering this correctly because if if it were if it, was, if it was earlier than that, I was on tour with Vanguard, um, but uh, on tour with with Blue Coats, I believe, and I was out in the middle of a field, and I got this uh, phone call from Eric um, Godal, who was the he was the um, like road say, manager or something. No, I say synth synth player in the band. Oh, okay. Eric was in the band. He was one of the Oh, I remember him. The writers. Yeah. Um, but he, he really didn't play synth. He played B3 like 90% of the time. He had a Nord lead and a, and a B3. It was like a super cool setup with like the actual Leslie speaker and nice. pretty old school approach. But um, um, he called me and said, hey man, you know, Bill passed away. And I just, I remember like literally sitting down in the middle of this giant grass field some high school in the middle of like a bunch of people around or were you Iowa. To be no, I was by myself and wow. I was just, I just sat there and like cried for an hour. It was really weird. Wow. Was, and I, it's so vivid in my, in my head. Cause it's, it's such a weird place to be. What was the feeling? Was there a lot of times you hear people talk about like a feeling of disbelief? Like, no, 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 no. Or did you, what, did you know it was real instantly? And did, you, did it hit you in the stomach? Or something? You always like, was it like a gut punch? Like, oh, what? I don't think I've ever been that close to. That's why I'm asking because I've never to, had somebody pass away that death. Close. Yeah, as as far as a a friend, obviously, you know, there's great grandparents and grandparents and and people that you know live long. Who cares, lives. who cares about them, right? Well, it's a you no, know, I'm, just, I'm kidding. It's a, it's a different. Yeah, you have a distant a relationship vibe, but with to them. have somebody. Especially Bill was like, uh, he was um, pretty wild, crazy, and and troubled in his mm. youth and damaged himself pretty good, um, my understanding. And then he, by the time I had met him, he was 180 degrees. Yeah. He was... A clean, diff- clean and sober. Yeah, yeah. clean, sober, and and recognized the the flaws of his of his ways and uh and it had become pretty religious too right yeah but it 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 caught up to him and i think that's the the sadness i felt is that when i heard that that he had passed i'm like man it it was too little too late like he he figured out that he was not living life the way he should have been Mm. too late and he couldn't undo the damage he had done Physically. Yeah, right? to his body. Yeah. And, you know, just... Uh, well, he died of a heart attack, right? I think it was hardening of the arteries and okay. led to a heart attack, I think. It was just some crazy, you know, it's just the repercussions of 
hard so drugs. In that moment, how, when you're dealing with it emotionally, and I don't know if the word is allowing yourself to break down, but you're breaking down. Are you thinking about the tragedy of it? Are you thinking about, wow, he's just not here anymore? Are you replaying memories? Like what? What was the thing? What, what was the go-to? I didn't reach out to him enough. I I didn't stay. Uh, regret. I didn't stay in his life. Um, as much as I wanted, as much the way I thought about him and the way he was in my head was not reflected in, in my, my, uh, like getting off my, my ass to go see him. Are go you, did that out. change how you are at all? Because I see you as somebody who, you know, at the top of this, I thanked you for driving out here, but you're, I really appreciate that about, about you. And I, I strive to be more, intentional about relationships because I think a lot of people that I know and really care about I think there's something about the way my life functions and maybe just I just need to get my act together in terms of relationships but and that has to do with being an introvert but long story short you know I I think I don't think I'm as intentional as I could be and should be with with friendships and I've always really appreciated the like I, f- I feel really valued as your friend because you like, you make a point to like do things like, and even though you're, you're really busy and you have an intense schedule far more than mine, I feel like that's something, that's something I really appreciate about you. Is that, was that affected by this or is it just in that area with him, it just happened to have lost touch a little bit and didn't spend as much time together? I, I can't say that it has, um, is it part of it? Like overtly or, or just directly, but perhaps perhaps it has some effect on, you know, if there's if there's somebody that you, oh, I should go see them. Or yeah, I should, I should give that person a call. Um, actually do it. <laughs> yeah, actually do it. Because that thing that you're doing is pretty unimportant. You know, that, that thing that, that's stopping you from calling somebody up. Or, yeah, you uh, know what? You have a motto around that. Did it come from Seth Godin? What's that? There's a, there's urgent and there's important. Oh, probably. Explain that. I love that. It's just a cool little mechanism. <laughs> Explain it. <laughs> I guess unpack it's, it's unpack a, this. It explains. Yeah, please, the onion needs to be <clears throat> unonioned. It, it's actually pretty, pretty simple. Um, yeah. Urgent versus important. Um, you know, it's uh, applying it is not simple. Well, it, maybe it's best. Um, we, we talk about this on the road a lot. Like when, when we're on the road with uh, Blue Knights, middle middle of nowhere on tour, and you got a block that you know starts in fifteen minutes, and oh, I, I got to be there for the block. You know, um, ensemble starting or whatever it is, and <clears throat> somebody will be notifying this person that, oh, by the way, we're running low on uh, on heads. We need to make a head order. It's like, okay, yeah, I I got a block in 15 minutes. You know, I'll do it later. No. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> the block is urgent. Ordering heads, like if you don't order heads, um, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel that in a week or two weeks when you run out of heads and because you thought that block was so important, you, mm. couldn't, you couldn't miss that block. 
Now you have no heads. It's funny. That's almost like another version of urgent, but it's just more of a time delayed urgency. Yeah, it's but I like important. when you I like when you apply it to, and you've done this with just even this podcast, and we have like a little small community with the podcast that um, we're kind of regrowing with this new version of it. But remember, you saying it's it's going to be hard to do it because I'm so busy, but it's important to me, and like there's lots of things that are urgent, but I'm. This is. I'm going to put this on the important list because I think this is something that, you know, long term, something that we're going to want to pour into, and making time for that. Even today, I mean, it wasn't easy for you to come out here. You had a bunch of stuff going on in the home front that could have been considered urgent or important, like maybe hard to distinguish. But you you came out here and like made the point to do it, and it's cool. It's a, it's a good way to kind of measure things, I guess. It's another one of those little, like, uh, taking the temperature of, of, of the moment. Is it, is it just urgent or is it actually something important? Can the urgent thing be put off a little bit for this more important thing? It's cool. Um, did you want to add to that or can I go to the next question? I think I, I, think I completely derailed into uh, my story about, about Bill from the, um, the audition, <laughs> but I can wrap this up real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So... Bam, do the audition. He says, great job. You're bleeding. I make the band. They're like, let's do this. Wait, right. wh- who told you you made the band? Um, did they the, did. The singer, like, was it right in the room or did you have to wait? I waited about an hour. It was, oh, just an hour. Yeah, okay, that's it was good. right there. So they were like, it's done. Yeah, it's done. Because I think they had experienced so many so many people. I was kind of at the tail end. And then, uh, so what ended up happening, is I was in the band. They were signed on Mercury. So I was getting paid for all of my time. Just Were you on retainer cool. or like just getting paid for everything, single thing you did? If I showed up to a rehearsal, um, I got paid. And it didn't matter. I remember how long hearing the about the money too and being like, Whew. it wasn't even that much money, but it, it was, was just cool compared to 70, 80, maybe 100 bucks a gig for me at the time. It was, a, I, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but I'm, I think it was $150 per rehearsal. And that would include rehearsals that, um, got canceled because there are a lot of times where David would be, uh, David, the singer, he would say, um, Hey, my voice is, is jacked. Um, can't play today. Mm. We get paid for that because yeah. he, he canceled it. So we got, we still got paid for it. Yeah, so I guess that, at that time, the difference between an $80 gig at the Sandpiper, which is where I met, met Bill Bishke and a 150 just to rehearse, you know, that like, yeah, was cool. Lot. That's a lot. And then you were getting what? Well, double the, the, double well, the, or three times that for yeah, gigs. Yeah, the, the, the cool, the cool thing about the rehearsals too is that it was at this place called Leeds in uh, North Hollywood, mm. and um, I never even knew these places existed. Rehearsal places, I was like, and I guess it made sense to me at the time. Like, oh, I guess when you watch a concert, at some point they had to practice that, right? Yeah, um, they're cool this, places, man. But yeah, like full lighting rigs. Like, well, we would be like, I remember going in there, and this is this will tell you the time that we were there. But like, oh yeah, and Hanson was just here and, and they're on their way out. So as soon as they get out, like you guys can get, get on in. Mm, Bob, your yeah. turn. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, do you remember, uh, oh, you know what? I guess I need to remember. I just forgot her name. Um, <laughs> who's the one that did, I'm a bitch. I'm a, Meredith Brooks. Meredith Brooks. Thank you. Thank you. Bam. One hit wonder. Meredith Brooks. Meredith Brooks was rehearsing there when we were there. Um, and then uh, I remember hearing this bass line. I was in the lobby and I heard this bass line through the walls and I started singing along to it. And I'm like, 
I know this bass line. What's this bass line from? And it had a seven, I had like seven bars in there. And, and I'm like, what is this bass line? And then I figured out, I'm like, dude, that's a Tori Amos song. And so I run up to the, to was the, it Cornflake Girl? That's the one that's in seven. I think. I, yeah, I was off Under the Pink, I think. Yeah. Under the Pink? Under the, the Cornflake Yeah, yeah, yeah. Girl. And I'm like, what's going on in room three or whatever it is? And uh, like, oh, it's uh, Tori Amos's band. They're, they're auditioning uh, new drummers. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm like listening through the door. I never actually saw anybody from the band, but I was listening through the door. And that was super cool. That's um, one of my favorite records that I always forget to cite is Little Earthquakes. Her first solo record is Yeah, that's amazing. a great album. Great amazing. Album. Under the Pink's great too. And then uh, I had a, a... A flash... Oh. I was going to say I had a, a bathroom encounter oh, with fun. Frankie Valley. I peed. Yikes. I peed next to Frankie Valley. Oh, I thought you were gonna say peed on. No, or there's a lawsuit. No, we just no. peed like in tandem, like parallel peeing. Dude, <laughs> hashtag parallel peeing. Oh, with a, with what a was legend. Funny, yeah, what was funny about it is he was actually singing as I was walking in because he was already in there. Oh, really? I walked in the bathroom. The acoustics, and, you know. And he's just singing like he's going through some lyrics or whatever. And I'm like, ah. You know, just trying to be cool and not saying anything, you know. Just Did you know at first or were you like, hey, you got a future, Grandpa? <laughs> That's no, awesome. Man. Just well, like, grease is the word, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. So flash forward, though, that, okay, that so initial little hookup that, led to you playing in front of how many people where? Well, that, hang on. Wait, that, just give me the stat. I just know what I'm told, so I don't know well, it what it was. Well, it was roughly. I heard there was 100,000 people in the middle of the Bastille. That's awesome. They were there to see Oasis. You guys opened for Oasis. We, we right? opened for Oasis. And I, I have my mini disc recording from side stage of Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> I had this little mini disc recorder and I'm sitting on the side stage and I'm like, And we're oh. talking when they were at the peak. It was, um, right? it was July of 2000. And, and they opened up with. Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the song. Oh well, it doesn't matter. An Oasis song. It was one of the, it was a killer tune, and and I just remember, um, I just remember the the view from side stage. You know, he puts his hand behind his back, and yeah, yeah, he has. He kind of lunges forward, yep. sings into the mic, and I had the side view of that, and the bass player is just jamming, and oh, it's beautiful. That's so cool, man. But they were complete, complete dicks. That's the uh, word on the street, and you can yeah, tell by we, watching a little touch of an interview. We couldn't get into our uh, our dressing room before the gig to prepare to go on because they were on the premises. So their security team superseded the security team of the venue. So I, I my pass got me beyond the the venue security. Okay, and. My past did not get me through <laughs> their security. So I'm like, hey, I'm going on in like five minutes. All my stuff, my stick bags in the, in the, in the room, and they didn't care. Nope. They're like, nope, they are in the building. We are No famous. one's moving. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> like, all right. Typical. Yeah, there it is. All right, Lainey, Riboda, Riboda. On to your question. Is it difficult to balance family and career and a career in music? Here's a good question. I think it's Who goes first? Like any career. Well, difficult to balance. 
family, but I. Th- yeah, yeah, you take this one. All right, I'll start. Um, it it can be difficult, but I know if I wasn't in a music career, then that would be difficult because I would be very unhappy, and that and then I'd make everybody around me unhappy. So I think all things considered, <laughs> it's less difficult than if I wasn't following my passion. Um, I had, a, I'm really grateful that, you know, early in my marriage, you know, I, we got married and I was financially secure. And so in that way it was, I was able to create a situation that really fit me personally, which was, I, I love a complete blend of life and career. Like there's really, it's, I'm not a clock in clock out guy. I'm a, everything's mushed together guy. So, you know, Andy and I were partners forever, for forever, for so many years, probably 14 years or something, something like that. And I always had the studio. Well, there's a point where we both had a studio at our house, but I, I loved having the studio at my house and, and I being able to just go out there any time of day I'm always kind of passing in and out of the house. So to be able to create that kind of situation made it less difficult. And and in other ways, more difficult because it wasn't like I ever turned off. That's, yeah, that's... I think that's part of what makes it difficult, right? That's the challenge is that um, sometimes answering a simple text with sometimes just a, a one word response is paramount to something that's happening a thousand miles away. And I have to answer that text. Like when and there's it, when there's things going on. Um, and you could be at a romantic dinner with your wife. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it doesn't matter if it's 11 p.m. or whatever. Like if somebody's in, you know, if somebody's in Kansas and they need an answer to a question in order to move forward, um, um, or I have to, I have to relay information. Whatever's going on, you know, when there's tour mm-hmm. happening, um, it's it makes it tough. It makes it tough that. Uh, you, you're never turned off. It's always, um, I, th- I think the way I've balanced it, the way I've tried to, um, I guess, pitch it uh-huh. is that um, it's better for me to be sort of on call to answer texts and, and communicate. Dr. Mike. At all times than it is for me to go into the office eight hours a day. Right. So yeah, thank God trade-off. I don't have to do that. So yeah, yeah, it's like I'm I'm around. I get to stay home. I get to take care of my little one. And uh, um, I'd rather be on 100% of the time and not have to clock in at an office. Now here's another day. aspect of that, which is I think in order to even, and I'll say this maybe a little bit too like, all the way than it is but in my experience you can't even entertain really having a career in music maybe unless you're a teacher or you find a certain gig that has very clear boundaries on it um, or you work at a company but to have a career in music I believe that your best chance is that you've turned your craft and art into a complete integrated lifestyle it's who you are. It's how you think. Like you talk about getting getting a text and needing to respond at some time. 
you get text messages from the great beyond called inspiration and you have to jump on those too you have to respond to the idea when the idea comes it's not like oh well i'm not working right now it's like no then the idea flies away so you have to almost be on call creatively to where you can i've set up my life that way where um i've gone through great pains to make sure that i'm in i live in a situation where if you know i'm relying on my my ability to capture inspiration and take it somewhere that's my livelihood so i need to take that very seriously when when i'm feeling the right thing and the, and i can envision it happening and i can go out and be in the studio doing it that's like been everything every huge moment in my career where maybe things have stepped for like jumped ahead and i wrote the right song with the right person at the right time or whatever it might be it's often been one like due to capturing and chasing a moment when it happened and not letting it just fly away. And that's partially just kind of the way I'm built creatively is that things just, they come and they go and I have to capture them. And I've, I, there's discipline involved too. Like I definitely, um, especially in those days, had was constantly writing and recording things. But making it a lifestyle really does affect your ability, your family and your relationships. And <clears throat> I'm always carrying, back in the day, pre-iPhone, I was carrying around a tape recorder everywhere I went. It was like keys, wallet, tape recorder so that I could just, even if it was like Christmas, I could duck away into the car and like put down an idea or, you know, whatever it might be. And that, what it makes you is maybe somewhere else a lot and that can be that's maybe the biggest toll it takes on a relationship is that you're it's almost like there's a invisible second wife or something which is your art and part of your head can be there i think and so being present is can be a challenge <clears throat> especially when you're really in a period of being really busy or being really kind of tuned into your creativity but it's absolutely manageable and i think it you have to pick a person who accepts you for who you are even if they don't love that or it it gets in the way sometimes they have to appreciate that you're nothing without it so <laughs> they need to know what they're getting into because if you try to pry that piece of a of an artist away from them i mean there may be times when it needs to be done short term but if you really try to put boundaries on something like the lifestyle of an artist i think you're in for a the building of resentment and a long-term <laughs> explosion that may come later. That's what I think. Because it's a part of who we, who we are. It's part of, it's one of the things we do. We eat, sleep, we drink fluids, and we make stuff. If you take one of those out, you start to atrophy as a person. You become ev like even less of a valuable part of the relationship, I think. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think, I think that's very well said. I think period. Period. Okay. <laughs> so um, I think I saw one other one come in. We'll answer that. All right. You want to check Twitter? Let's check the Twitter. Back. I'll, boom, while I'm boom, checking boom, the Twitter, I will uh, throw in some other tidbits on this uh, this so, this gig thing. 
and how it all ended. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> sorry, did I didn't mean to cut that off. No, no, no. Actually, it's kind of funny because how we even ended up in Europe for seven months touring, yeah. um, <clears throat> there was over a year hiatus. So the, the Novocaine band, um, we did some local gigs. I think the biggest thing we did is we opened up for, um, what's the band? Uh-oh. I Just Want to Fly. Put your arms around me, baby. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sugar, Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray. We opened up for Sugar Ray at, at, at a Lake Tahoe snowboarding festival. <laughs> oh, I remember I played, you telling me about this. Yeah, I played in Super this, cold. Oh, yeah, I was so pissed. My grudge just got wet. And uh, it sounded like you snow. said your grudges got wet. No, my grudges. Grudge um, Yeah, I, 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 the stage was set up facing like the uh, the snow, the the jump, the, the snowboard jump. Oh, and and it started snowing, but it was snowing like horizontally at you into the stage, a rain covered sideways. <laughs> so as the snow is hitting the stage. The lights are melting, so it's basically raining on my gretches. And oh. I just—I have this vivid memory, like this is terrible, terrible like performance. Like I was not in the zone. <laughs> I was playing, just, and I'm just looking at my drums, going, "My wood." Oh. Yeah, they were lacquered. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it's funny. Um, so anyway, that was like the biggest gig we played in the states. And then uh, David just says, "Hey, I'm moving back to Paris later." And so the the band was just null and void. Sounds and, like uh, something a rich dude does. Yeah. Uh, well, he's a he's a race car driver, and he also does like uh, French voiceover acting for. Um, he was doing Disney movies. Like if if you watch uh, certain Pe- Disney, Pepe anim- Le Pew. Well, if you watch certain Disney animated features um, in French, uh-huh. if you select the French, oh, it's you might get a him. lot of them or him. Yeah. Um, or at least one that I know of. I know his did. voice is awesome, man. It's yeah. somewhere between Sting and Kurt Cobain. Yeah, he's awesome. But um, he bailed for like a year and a half, and then out of nowhere, I just thought, oh, that's cool. I got to play with in a cool band. Got paid for rehearsals, jamming. A year and a half goes by. He he calls and says, hey, I recorded this French album. It's all in French, and it it did surprisingly well. And we're gonna tour it. You want to play drums? I say, yeah, sign me up. So the the way it this ties into the, the marching arts is he called me in September um and the tour was in January. So that year this was um 0102? No, this is the year go this is going into 2000. So oh, this okay. is uh, September of 99 is when he called me. That's right cuz the Oasis gig was with his solo thing. Yeah, right. So um I had to write and stage uh, all my indoor shows on tour from September to January. So it's the first time in my life where I finished a show in January. <laughs> <laughs> so it can't be done. And actually both groups medaled that year at, at, uh, at WGI finals. So that was, was kind of cool. So, um, yeah, so go get a French artist gig. Yeah. All you show designers. No. But, but yeah, then I, I, I bailed in January and, uh, um, I, I was able to come back home. It's not like I was, you know, sequestered for seven months. I was, I was going back and forth. But um, I wish I, you would have got gotten to play on that record. You did do some recording with him. I did a recording of a, a um, obviously live version, but I did record one song with him. I don't think they ever released it though. That um, record had an influence was influential on me for for that year. I remember 
is way song. better than Novocaine. I yeah, thought. it was yeah. super well written, Beatles influenced, just good, timeless singer songwriter stuff. And it sounded like it was sonically, it was really good. I remember yeah. when you brought it over and you're like, that Novocaine thing has become this. And I put it on my speakers and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah. I remember that song, Pour-toi. Yeah. And what was cool about it is hearing songs that were in a style that I liked, I'd never heard this before, that, and the, the vibe of the vocals and everything, but it was in French, but it didn't sound so overtly French as to be maybe awkward to my American ear. And I loved it because I couldn't understand a thing he was saying. And it brought out, it's almost like when you listen to some great Radiohead stuff where he's deliberately not really enunciating and it takes you to some other place that's like nonverbal. And I don't know if I told you this, but because I love that record so much and I loved what it felt like to not understand the words yet feel possibly what they meant. Um, I ended up reco- recording, writing and recording the song where I took, I tried to create my own language and <laughs> I, Sorry. so I wrote all the lyrics okay. okay, and then I took every word and chopped it into syllables and then just switched them by syllable. Huh. And then I would do anything phonetically that I needed to do to make it singable. So love became velo. <laughs> okay. And so um I got to hear this. The song was called Protect the Beauty and so that was um tech pro a the like I would even turn the into he the and then tebu would be beauty. Interesting. And the whole thing it ends up sounding slightly french but sort of um it's a strange combination but it was it was fun cuz it was like oh this is like a decoder ring. Like right, I can right. give a song to somebody and say, and like, wink, wink, just switch the word, you know? Right. And it's hard to kind of figure out, especially because I'm sort of taking some artistic license. But anyways, just that little That album, note. by the way, is, uh, excuse the trans, the the pronunciation, but it's uh, Un Parody Un Unfer. Um, so David, David Halliday, right? Halliday, yeah. And like H A L L Y D A Y H A L L A Y D A Y. Oh, I think Halley Day. Day. Okay, Um, look it up. Especially that song "Pour Toi," right, or something that means "for you," doesn't it? Yeah. But uh, super cool stuff. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention this, but David is a drummer, so he Uh, played. He plays drums on all his albums. That's right. Yeah. So that's it's. I think there's maybe a few albums he didn't play on, but. He plays his own drums, yeah, and then, on, on and then that. he. That's why he asked me if I wanted to do the tour. Obviously, he didn't want to play drums on his own tour. And um, that was probably a pretty cool. Like, ah, he liked me. Yeah. He wasn't just stuck with. He me. liked me once. <laughs> At one point, <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember. I was too. Um, uh, sometimes I was too articulate for him. Like, uh, oh, he wanted you to slop it up. Yeah, he. It, which basically, um, it was actually, it was actually pretty cool. Because at first I was really resistant. I was like, I don't want to play like that. But yeah, you're making me worse. But uh, he, I, looking back on it, I'm super thankful for that. For that, uh, you learned the value of that type of yeah. on purpose looseness. Well, because actually, when you and I have talked about this before, not on the podcast, but a lot, like when Nirvana came out, when that whole thing came out, like we hated it, and it's embarrassing. Yeah, and I look back now, I'm like, how did I hate it? Like, 
It's so, it's so awesome. You know, like Dave Grohl is like one of my favorite drummers. Um, I, I just didn't, I wasn't in the right space. I was in my, you and I were going to watch Mike Stern and John Patitucci at the Baked Potato. And, With Weckle, and like, yeah. we were just like, we were in a different place. Like we were listening to Simon Phillips and, and we and, always uh, had an appreciation for for groove drummers, but I think as stupid as it sounds, this is how myopic you can be when you're in this when you're young and full of whatever, piss and vinegar and have super strong opinions and either things suck or they're amazing or whatever. I just remember when I heard the beat, which back then I used to call the beat of the street. Beat of the street, yeah. Because <laughs> it was like me and my friend Trent. Who we grew up drumming together, and there was this guy Troy who lived on our street who played drums, and he had the hugest drum kit with all like his toms were concert toms with big old pieces of Kleenex on them, and his thing was, and that was the beat of the street, and we all learned it, and then we grew up a couple of years and went like, oh, that beat's stupid, you know, and so then he's playing the beat, and I'm just like, that's a that's a stupid, dumb beat. I was the same way when I heard when I heard all that stuff. I was like, oh. not appreciating that his feel is amazing and that it's yeah. obviously. <laughs> and it's funny. It's like whatever. I I especially love, we thought it was maturity, but it was immaturity. Yeah, I I, I especially love the uh, the second album. Um, is that in vitro or something? <laughs> in vitro, in utero. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, so is that El Caliente yeah. El Ticho you know it's funny it's like I, I, I've gone back um, and listened to some of the Dave Grohl stuff before he was in Nirvana um, and uh, I, I'm I'm spacing on the name of the band but they're kind of a popular punk, punk-ish band he was way more like what you and I would appreciate with that project oh like, interesting like very articulate and, and just and very, um, he was very appropriate with where he would put stuff, you know, like drummer stuff. Yeah, there was a he, certain. He never overplayed, but he did it in a way that was more in line with like probably where you and I were at. And then, like, the way he played in Nirvana was, I don't want to say it was acting, but it was, it was. Pretty much, kind of a departure from how he used to play before it was he got into that. Maybe yeah. on purpose, more caveman. Yeah, but you yeah. could tell there's a control there. Like I, I go to the detail. I've been like pulling up "Smells Like Teen Spirit" as like a songwriting study because it's mm. such an amazingly crafted song that has a lot of layers to it. And even just on the chorus, he hits a crash cymbal at the top of every bar, and every one of them is like the tiniest bit late. To the point where you're like, that's not a guy who sucks or is, he's going and it's like, <laughs> yeah, he had way, he had total control of what he was doing. Yeah. Even if, sure. it, if it sounded. Well, and it's funny because like just a few years later, you listen to something like Monkey Wrench and it's just like, it's just it's like right there. It's just in the pocket. Was that him on that or did Taylor play on that? No, Taylor played on the tour. Okay. Yeah. Is Monkey Wrench... No, oh, Monkey Wrench is don't end on end on. Okay, right. yeah, it's just right. super tight and articulate, long. and um, so but cool. yeah, it's like it's it's he's always had that in him because you listen to that old that old uh, punk stuff he was doing, and it's it's sharp. Yeah, and then when you hear 
him on the Queens of Stone Age record. It's even a little step further yeah. in terms of the virtuosity aspect. Um, side note, he, uh, Gannon and, and my friend Drew worked with on Taylor Hawkins record. He has a, who's the drummer of the Foo Fighters side project called, um, Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Riders. And Grohl came in to their little funny small studio in, in Burbank and played drums on a song. And they said, first of all, he, he did one take, buried the click the entire time, and they went in and the drums were basically ruined. <laughs> he hit so hard that all the heads were like gone, but the take was amazing. And he just hammers and it's... It was it was pretty awesome to hear that story. We have a couple more questions we should hit real quick before we go. About five have come in. Carl the drum tech. What's up, man? Did you see me exchange with him? He uh I did not. Uh, I invited him on the show at some point. The show, the podcast. Oh, oh yeah. Car- Carl, okay. Carl. When you said Carl, I pictured the letter C. Oh. And that's right. a different human. You're picturing Carl's Jr. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Carl with a K. Yeah. What's yeah. up, Carl? So I get the impression you guys read books. <laughs> if I'm correct, name a few faves. Smiley face. Uh, I remembered another joke Jim Jim Wonderlick and I used to laugh at. It's uh, Airheads. I think Adam Sandler, right? Yeah. And like they they uh, they break into a studio and they they demand like thirty copies of Moby Dick, and the cop goes. The movie or the book, and he says, "They made a book out of that." <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, perfect. Kills me. Books. Right. Um, you know what? Not only do I read them, I've written one. <laughs> uh, good books. I would say, "Cat in the Hat" is high on the list. Um, anything by Shel Silverstein. Where the sidewalk ends. Uh, I was what is say it? The, Light in the attic. I was going to say the Giving Tree. Um, <laughs> the Giving Tree is amazing. Yes. I actually read that recently. I, I've, I've cried. I've cried reading the Giving Tree. Really? I actually have. Yeah. At some point, I had a, I had a moment recently with it. That was my favorite book when I was um, uh, four or something. It's written on there. My mom said Adam's favorite book at four years old, five years old, whatever it was. <laughs> And you know, I was you, were, you were already it. emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had a touch of the melancholy. Uh, um, that book is it's amazing. But anyways, I assume you're talking about real books. Real I would say books. a couple of my favorite books are by C.S. Lewis. So like, The Four Loves is an amazing book. It talks about <laughs> the love of um more in biblical terms, like the love between friends, the love between family members, um, Eros, which is like the love between you and, and a loved one. So more romantic love. And then agape, which is like the love between you and God and all those different loves function in different ways and are, are complete paradigms of love. And they're it's split up and that book talks about it in, in an amazing way. So I love that. And I love mere Christianity is another one that really helped bolster and clarify my own belief system that, you know, when you grow up, I grew up as a believer um, and a Christian and just there's a certain point where you, you pass into your late teens and early twenties where you start to go like, well, is this just a thing that 
was bestowed on me? Like, what do I really think, you know? And you start to kind of venture out mentally. And that book really made me go like, yes, this is, this is what I believe. And he's articulating thing, answering questions that I'd always had and articulating it in such a way that felt like the depth of it superseded the depth of my own kind of intellectual issues and just really brought it together. And then since then, I think Jordan Peterson has done that to an even greater degree, um, especially because there's such a treasure trove of him speaking about religion relative to psychology and, and making sense of those two things, which has really been amazing for me because that's my biggest, it's what I write about the most is sort of this, the tension between emotion, thought and spirituality and like what that crazy triangle can do your thoughts about reality and where meaning is found in life and what negative emotion, how, how that functions. Um, and funnily enough, I haven't, I, I watch and listen to so much of Jordan Peterson's work. I haven't gotten into his new book, but I would imagine that book will make the list once I get into it. I need to get the audio book. I, I bought the book. I haven't read it yet. You have the hard copy? I do have the hard copy. I, for some reason, I, I like hard copies. Yeah, I'd rather have a used, beat up hard copy than a than a new paperback. So, what um, are your top topics? Well, I was going to say I'm, I'm going <laughs> to conveniently follow up your C.S. Lewis with uh, oh, with Sam. some Sam Harris books. Every <laughs> you go, <laughs> you know, you got the yin and the yang over here. There's some balance. Um, no, I'm in the middle of the moral landscape right now, mm. and. Um, I need a few more flights, a few more uh, plane flights to finish that one. That's when I read the most. And um, actually, there's a book I loaned to you. Where it's is it? It's called Lying. It's called Lying. And in, I've totally read it four times. That's Lying. I want to read it. I haven't read it yet. I, I'd like it back because I want to read it again. It's a little guy. It's a tiny little book. And I just loved it. Even if there's some things in there that maybe you know, you have, you have issue with, I think just exploring the thought of lying and that we do these little, these little lies all the time. We don't even realize we're doing. Yeah. I read the first few pages and that was the immediately got, what he jumped right. on. And I want to, I want my kids to read it. So give it back. I will. <laughs> and I know exactly where it is and it's safe. Okay, good. Um, anyway, I would I'd recommend that book. And I, I literally read it in a day. It's super small. I just zipped right through it while I was, um, I was at a layover and uh, had a couple hour flight and just zoomed right through it. But um, And his take on it, just from the few pages that I read, really connects to our earlier conversation about truth and authenticity and high resolution creativity because I think it's lying. Whenever you're kind of like petering out and taking the easy way out, the, it's like a it's a weird kind of lie that you're telling yourself or that you're, te- that you're telling people through your work. If you think of it that way, like I'm just not going to lie. I'm not going to do anything that's for the purpose of manipulating my audience or whatever through it's. It's even the little editing that we do when we say things like, uh, it's, it's not a huge deal, but it's, it's an interesting challenge to never lie when you say, Oh yeah, four o'clock when you know it was, 406 yeah. or 358, you know. Um, There's lying by omission. There's lying by slight 
exaggeration or slight downplay or all those things are lying, but just degrees. And some things, it's an interesting challenge to how do I simplify this in bite-sized pieces where they don't need to know details. Like I'm going to clutter up the story with, with uh, insignificant details. How do you do that without lying? It's, oh. And that's, that's the, the more, uh, I think the thing that was, was intriguing to me about mm. the book is, um, and another book I want to throw out there is um, one we've talked about before is the, uh, the war of art. Oh, great a little, book. A little play on the art of war. I experienced that as a, as a, Audiobook, which I highly recommend. the The audio talent is really great. Sounds like the uncle you never had or something talking to you. And I just love um, that was a great one, man. That's that's a super quick read. I think I read it in two days. Um, uh huh. Yeah, it's a two and a half hour. Yeah. Um, audiobook too. The War of Art. That's a great one. And then Start with Why is another great book that I've I've dipped into, but have learned about all the concepts it's um simon sinek he does he has a ted talk that really summarizes the book in, a, in an amazing way it's almost it's like see the ted talk and maybe skip the book oh, that's weird to say but anyway the, the it's great start with why um all right there's some books for you yeah fancy we gotta, book learning we gotta get carl over here yeah it'd be cool sure if you guys don't know who carl is i'm sure you do um yeah, his his ta- his uh, handle is at Carl Drum Tech. Yeah, he's Carl, got, okay. I think he's got a pretty big YouTube following or uh, Instagram following, but he's he's like one of these guys that's just like you can't shake him. He's uh, super wholesome, very low energy, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> high energy. Carries that tenor pad around everywhere, um, but. Uh, He's always just got something really um, wholesome, positive, and and productive um, to say, philanthropic, I guess to 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 offer um, to the marching arts community and and he he addresses a lot of uh, real situations that that kids are in nowadays. Like I have a high stress audition coming up, and how do I get ready for that? And he'll. He'll have these little, uh, yeah, little techniques help, and helpful hints. Yeah. Anyway, I just I, I reached out to him probably more more than a year ago, I think, um, and said, "Hey, man, I really like I really like what you're doing. There's not enough, there's not enough of this, not enough um, philanthropy with mm-hmm. the marching arts. And there's a ton of kids that do it. It's a, you know, it's a niche activity, but um, it's." Uh, it's just nice to see that you know, most of the stuff we see online is like, oh, they're dirty. Um, oh, they sound like a high school baseline, you know. And it's it's uh, it's nice to see someone that's not um, falling into that god awful pit of YouTube comments. Right. Yeah, he's um, rising above it with lots of positivity. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. Cool. Here's another question. Let's see. From at j dot. Bizar, J Bizar. What helped you form your style of writing music? And that's for both Mike and Adam. Okay, I have. A, do you have something? Yeah, queued up and ready to go. Yeah. Um, I think when you can put something out in the in the ether that 
takes its own shape and form um, other than what's actually written on the paper. To me, that's, that's the goal with, with everything. Um, that's the, the attempt is that it's, it's some like musical organism that, uh, that isn't, I, we talked about this a little bit last time, but that isn't rhythmic in nature as far as like, I don't, I'm not looking for mm. you to feel a certain rhythm. I want you to feel a texture, you know, like what is, yeah. what does flannel feel like? And what is, you know, <laughs> what does nylon feel like? What does satin feel like? What does wool feel like? You know, it's those things that are highly complex on a micro level. But when you zoom out, you're just getting like tapestry, you're getting fabric. And I was drawn to that because I, I felt um, as a kid listening to a lot of the Ralph Hardiman stuff. Um, and then, um, much later, uh, Jim Casella has that approach. Um, or I, maybe, you know, I don't, I don't want to say what approach Jim Casella has, but he has that effect on me when I listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's very textural. And I feel like that the, the, the notes, the rhythms that are written down on the paper, isn't what I'm hearing. And that's, it's the closest approximation yeah, written it's, on paper of what you're hearing. Well, no, there's just components. I guess it's, it's if you want to get into like or you know, orchestral, uh, um, um, arrangements, um, orchestration, and you can think about um, a lot of. Uh, I'm thinking of, of Daphne et Chloé mm. by um, Ravel, and just thinking about all those textures and and tapestries of sound that you're hearing. But if you were to look at, you know, just one violin part and you look at that rhythm, it means nothing. Mm. It means nothing by itself. So the, the sum is right. So I've always been I've always been been drawn to how can you do that with a battery with not sounding like a complete train wreck? Right. Um I think that's that's the style is like how do how do you make weave textures in and out of each other without while also serving the full product like you can't just alienate the, mm-hmm. the brass book or the the wind score um yeah and that's is that through partially like a desire to break ground and not tread on old trammeled i think it's simpler lanes? than that i think it's simpler than that. i think it's just like well, I mean, if you were to write something that sounded like it's been done before would something in you cringe a little and go like i i need to push harder than that it's it's less about me being conscious of whether it's been done before. It's more about me just not liking it. Like it's like a beat of the street. It's a taste like, thing. Right. I just I'm not gonna write that. So I'm yeah. not gonna write the marching equivalent of what that is. Mm-hmm. And not because I'm deliberately trying to stay away from it. It's just because I just don't like it. Um, yeah. So you're what forms I, I would relate to that. What helped you form your style let was, was me, going after what you relate to. Right. And I'm doing that thing again where <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood. When I say I don't like it, I mean, I don't like creating it. It doesn't mean that's not a judgment on somebody else doing it or somebody else's work. It's just in the context of just, I don't like it. Like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. It's a shirt you wouldn't wear, right. but you're not mad at somebody else exactly. who wears it. Exactly. I think what helped me form whatever style I have in writing music is is a 
it's pretty similar. And then I'm my goals and intentions with with music is if what I've noticed is that if that I have the same goals and intentions with um, the visual art I've created or um, you know writing actually write like writing my book or writing I've done some you know fiction writing just like screenplays and things like that and it's about I'm always interested in sort of transcending the form itself to get to something that's beyond expectations or that doesn't feel like it's easy to categorize so I want to use the tools of timelessness to sort of um, set up an avenue for the gut level feelings and emotions to come through. So I really, I want there to be like, it's almost like there's a bit of a recipe for when I feel like I'm writing a song, a song has this potential to encompass all of this. This is what a song is, is capable of doing as far as expressing the human experience. And I want to, I want to fill up that entire barrel if I can with every song. So like, there's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a recipe and I want something that rhythmically supports the intent. I want something that harmonically supports the intent. I want to give you something to think about. I want you to give you something to feel about. Uh, I want this song to be just as good today as it might be in 10 years. So therefore I'm not willing to use tools that might be the trendy ones. Like I want to, I want to get in touch with that, which is just sort of a above style, maybe. And in, in that, you end up with, it's not like, that sounds like I'm trying to be like groundbreaking or something. It's more than I'm just trying to not get in the, make anything get in the way of what matters the most to me, which is just getting something across through music. And music has, there's so many stylistic, genre-specific things that can take you out of a song you know like you can hear a song go like oh that's that type of song i'll turn it off and i think um i've tried to internalize maybe my influences to the point where i don't i'm not conscious of when i'm accessing them i'm just sort of trying to take everything that's been subconsciously absorbed and what i've learned and what i love and use that to just get my experience out into music and that's that I think ends up sounding a certain way. And, and I try to f- f- allow that to develop. Like there was a period going from, you know, mur- my murder yesterday record, which is a period of being meticulous and extremely accurate with everything. And that felt like the way I needed to express those things. And then I believe life on earth came next. And that was a real departure from, as much of a meticulous uh, attention to detail with technicalities and, and um, I guess extreme high resolution in certain areas on life on earth. It, to me, I wanted to be a little bit more um, expressionistic and use abstract. And, and for me, that meant like using effects and reverbs and, th- and, and a sense of space in a new way. Whereas most of Murder Yesterday is it's very dry 
and very in your face and articulate and life on earth gets into territories of sort of invoking a space and then way out was in, was the next record even though fallborn came out in between it had been recorded earlier but way out was sort of me sergeant peppers <laughs> i don't know <laughs> that's high praise thanks man <laughs> but my sergeant peppers which is more of just like a sergeant salt what private peppers it was <laughs> way out was highly influenced by watching the documentary glass on philip glass and just sort of <clears throat> digging into like turning off any preconceived notions about what's good and what's not and just allowing myself to build on things that that's i discovered in that album a part of myself that was i feel like i always have this little thing running which is like does this matter is it worth it am i you know i gotta make sure this is matters it doesn't matter doesn't matter and representing that through a certain type of developing motif type of writing ended up expressing that part of me which i hadn't really before it's like here's the motor that's always running like i want to try to get better as a person i want to do things of meaning i don't want to waste time all that stuff and that ended up representing itself through musical like when you hear the song the title track of that record way out it's this one arpeggio that just keeps repeating in one phrase, way out at the top of the world, at the edge of the edge of the edge. And it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And that just, it feels like when I listen to that record, I go, yeah, this is how it kind of feels to be me, for better or for worse. It's just this droning on of thinking and feeling and trying to develop it into something more. And that song, that album has fewer song songs that feel, I guess, maybe like a traditional song would feel. And they just sort of, they're, they're, experiments that go and and then stop anyway so that's sort of my thing i feel there's a good feeling i get when i kind of check all these little boxes when there's something for me as a drummer that feels like it supports the thing over here and you know there's a there's a rabbit hole we can get into probably be way too long but <laughs> I know. you mentioned about not deliberately steering away from things that might be uh, trends or might give away when the song was conceived and it's ironic that drums are the dead giveaway drums can ruin a song (laughs) based on when they were were recorded or what trends were trying to be adhered to um i I can think of like a bunch of songs off the top of my head they're like oh it's too bad the drums are recorded that way yeah because that song would be timeless and it's you think about songs that um, have stood the the test of time. And since, most yeah. most of them that I can think of just right now, off the top of my head. And this is all subjective, of course. They don't have drums in them. Oh, interesting. And it's like it could have been recorded yesterday, like uh, uh, "Landslide," Stevie Nicks, mm-hmm. 1974, I believe. I could have told you that was recorded yesterday. Right. Yeah, there. It's. There are a lot of reasons for that too. Like I think sonically, I'm remembering that song with no drums. So I hope there's no drums in that. <laughs> I don't think there is. Maybe percussion. Yeah. But yeah, songs that songs that are kind of spare too and broken down and more about acoustic guitar and vocal or piano and vocal. In the '70s, we we hit a point um, in recording where is some sort of awesome pinnacle where that things were be able things yeah. were recorded 
and it sounds amazing, and we still strive to reach the, some of those same heights with regards to organic sounds. And especially when they remaster a record that was made you know, in the seventies, I never thought about that. Like, yeah, especially um, like early seventies on. Depending on the instrumentation and your knowledge of the song, if you're completely ignorant of the of the artist and the song, and 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 I played that for you, you might not know when it was recorded. Yeah, as long as you volume match, that's one of the big things. Is just back then you can't fit as much low end on vinyl that you can on a seat. CD or MP3 or WAV file or whatever. So there, if it's just kind of, it's there. When they remaster a record, they boost some low end and they make it as loud as a modern record, and then it, you know, it stands up or sometimes transcends. I, <laughs> it's just slight side note to this. I went on a little rush binge, you know, the other day, and I was just sort of like reminiscing and you know listening to like to moving pictures, permanent wave signals, and then moving to, you know, the later 80s stuff and early 90s stuff. And side by side, it's objective that one sounds more impactful. Dude, that's, that moving pictures album is it, near perfection. It just sounds great. Oh my God. And then they all got super big, or Alex Lifeson, got like just a huge rig of digital gear and the guitar sounds got more complex and space age, but they actually got like smaller and more of a time. And now those records didn't age as well. And they don't, you just put them on just side by side and one sounds literally just like smaller than the other, even though from one perspective, the perceived size is bigger. Like they're using more reverbs and it was more, lush and layered but it actually it's the, the law of diminishing returns it's like they were sort of shrinking their sound by by trying to make it more grandiose right. but a lot of it was just more digital technology more obsession with technology i think uh limelight with with headphones in oh, a quiet yeah. room is one of my favorite experiences like you can just hear everything you can hear the dust on the drum head yeah it's beautiful not only that, you're hearing even more than everything because it's on analog tape. So you're hearing like that extra layer of harmonics that, that you often miss in those later records when they they didn't really know what they were missing. I think they were hearing more clarity and more pizzazz. And <laughs> I can't believe I used to use the word pizzazz, but it's easy to just get... I think that happened with... Um, what's that style of music that Skrillex helped launch? Ah. Yeah, that style. Dubstep? Is that what this is called? Uh, Whatever was a... <laughs> when that stuff hit, it was like people freaked out. And then a year later, you heard it and you're like, oh, that's so last year. You're like, yeah. it was so impressive and so technologically based that it, its shelf life ended up being really short. So I think navigating that lines, I call it the jeans and t-shirt. Like I want to, I want to find at any given time what the jeans and t-shirt of that time is. When, like if if you wore jeans and t-shirt in seventies, eighties, nineties, whatever, and the and your hair was cool, you had short hair or something, <laughs> you weren't breaking any, you weren't reg having regrets. But if you were like in the eighties wearing Z Cavaricis and like had a bunch of jelly bracelets on, you were like up on the trends. 
It just doesn't age well. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value though, but I just think for me, I'd rather kind of gravitate to those things that are going to be more lasting across every metric, like lyrically, melodically, sonically, instrument choice, as much as possible. That That's what's important to me. Anyways, next question. We better we better hurry up. I just don't one. want to leave anybody out. Um, let's see here. At HWD Punisher for Mike. This one's for Mike. Let's do like the rapid questions round with these last ones. What made you decide that your writing style right now is what you'd use consistently throughout the writing for your shows, both in BK and BCP? And how did, your approach, how did you approach it differently than the writers of other groups? There it is, in case you need to reference it, because that's a long question. What made you decide that your writing style right now is what you use consistently throughout? I don't know what he means by right, right now. I think basically, maybe he's saying like there's a connectivity in BK and, and Blue Nights and Broken City that's, so, that's very much you and you're not afraid of, of letting there be continuity between that because it is you. Like you don't wear I a think, different hat. I think that would happen you? with with anyone who is not trying to. Um, we kind of already answered this. In a lot yeah, of like if you're if you're deliberately trying to serve the music. Uh, and this sounds so weird. I don't even know how to say this without sounding weird. But weird. If, if you are, yeah. If you're deliberately trying to serve serve the music. Um, it's almost um, a missed opportunity for your thumbprint. Like it's, you don't want to serve the music to the point where there's no identity in what you're offering. Oh, that is weird. I wasn't expecting something weird. That's weird because. So you're saying that you don't want to disappear into it. You actually want to appear within it. And yeah. say something. And this this is the really weird thing about this activity is because there's so many people involved, and you say, "Well, it's about the group effort. It's about the macro." And you know, you got the you got the brass guy, you got the pit guy, you got the battery guy, you got the the color guard, you got the drill, you got all that stuff, and we all have to work towards you know the good of the the, the whole, the good of the product, and all of that's true. However, we can't discount that each one of those captions, each one each one of those elements is a human being is living a life that only gets one life. You don't get a second go around. And it's got to mean more than, oh yeah, I, I, I served the song. It's like, no, my life is more important than that. So my DNA, my thumbprint is going to be on that song, even to the point of possibly... Maybe I did something that might be counterintuitive to what you think would service the song, and but it's me. And if somebody else had written it, it would sound different. They would serve the song in a different way. Um, Can I speak to that really quick? Because I think sure that opened up a really interesting subject, which is, I mean, I think in life we have all these opportunities to either do what's sort of expected and traditional or step into the role of being the unique person that you are. So let's say, you know, you're, you're the best man at your friend's wedding 
and you have to do that dreaded speech. It's like you go up and phone it in because you just, people just want to hear the classic, like he means so much to me and I'm so glad they're together and cheers, you know, or do you go up there and bring you to it, that moment and make it your own? That's what people really want, but it's yeah. it's a scary, it's a scary step to take. And I think every op, when you play a role within something, you don't have to just hide in the role. You can, people want you to step out in those roles creatively, I think, and, and be like, I think about the really quick, the best session drummers, you know, two people come to mind that are kind of old school, but you know, session drumming is a little bit of the thing of the past. Or I think of Manu Kache and Jeff Porcaro, two people who always served the song, but always brought something of themselves. And that's what people wanted. So that's why, and Vinny Caliuta, these session guys that like well, yeah. brought that extra thing of theirs. Right. And we, we've, we've used the word chameleon before, like almost as a compliment, like, um, well, he's such a chameleon. He can do anything at any time and for any, any purpose. And he just kind of fits right in. I think the, maybe the older I get, the more I realize that like, that's not good. Yeah. You want to be some strangely colored lizard. Yeah. That like stays if, your color. If, uh, if you're a chameleon, I mean, what does that say? It just means like, what's the real you? And when do we get to hear that? And what colors are you adopting? That means you're on some level copying or lying or or phoning it in or trying you know, to follow in somebody else's footsteps, be derivative. I just thought of uh, Matt Chamberlain, who I, I hate to speak any like anything that could be perceived as as a criticism of him because I I love his work. Mm-hmm. But he's one of those guys that I've always I have this longing to hear more, but I don't know which one he's going to do. Which one what? Exactly. Like, think about the stuff that Matt Chamberlain's played on, and it's like, which one's him? Oh. Is it, because I hope it's the Fiona Apple Matt Chamberlain, because that guy, I want to hear everything he's done. I want to hear him do that Matt Chamberlain thing. Yeah. But I don't feel like he does that on everything that he plays. I think feel like he's a chameleon and he's all, kind of all over the place. True, but I do think there is a Matt Chamberlain, and maybe, maybe he's sometimes allowed to be it, and sometimes he's actually produced out of it or something. But sure, sure. And I do it's think it's not Matt, a criticism. It's just I, I'm trying to. No, I agree. Paint I, a picture. You got to make a living. Like <clears throat> I've definitely had to be a chameleon a lot in my career, and then also put my foot down and be like, I'm not going to be chameleon over here and whatever but with matt chamberlain i think his often when he's a chameleon yet still stands out it's because there's something magical about his feel he could play something that on paper could have been any like drummer. The, the wallflowers yeah <laughs> yeah and one one headlight if you guys know one headlight that's yeah. matt chamberlain um his drumming on under the pink tori amos his yeah. drumming on new uh edie Brickell and new bohemians mm-hmm. ghost of a dog record is unbelievable is so musical and so relaxed and so um, he he's able to bring a sense of phrasing to just pop drumming that there's an elegance to it and a snap. There's something about his traditional grip backbeat that just places in a spot that's just just right. Like Jeff Picaro, when you said Jeff Picaro and and yeah. Bernard Purdy, I mean you could just those guys have like a a thing. Yeah. And then Matt Chamberlain has like everything. So it's, 
Yeah, and he's of a different I generation. Even, I can't even put it into words, what, what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm saying is that don't try to fit in so much that you undo yourself. Yeah. Because you are, your value in what you're creating, um, it's, it's the time spent on it and you can't get that time back. You got to make it worth it. And the way you yeah. make it worth it is by leaving that mark, by being, being true. And, yeah, not being anonymous, not yeah, disappearing don't into Don't be it. anonymous. I love that. All right. Okay. Great. Do you still just wear boots and why? How does someone pick their perfect pair? At Lisa X Spice. At Lisa would say that. Yes, I do. And why? Because I think boots are the jeans of the footwear. <laughs> you get a good pair of boots, the trends could change and your boots remain. So that's my reason. <laughs> How do you pick the perfect pair? Um, you don't want them to look too shiny. You want to pick a good quality leather. And I don't like dealing with laces. So I'm down. I like a zipper side boot. You zip it down. You take it off. You put it on. You zip it up. How, how old are those boots? Probably two years old. Really? Yeah. Okay. They look older, right? No, they look like the same ones you've been wearing for <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Honestly, I would I would just do I'd have a uniform. Probably be like a broken city shirt. Some uh the jeans I love which are um, barbell jeans. They're like normal jeans but they're actually a little stretchy so they're comfy and some boots and I could just have like 10 of those and just wear it every day. I don't care anymore. What am I? I'm old now. Uh okay. Uh specifically Mar uh, Albert Avery. What's up, dude? Specifically for marching, where do you see the activity going? Props are getting bigger and becoming necessary for shows. Do you think it's possible for an ensemble to win with a painted floor and no props? How much are finances going to hold groups back? Whew. There's a lot. All right, let me hit all these real quick. Where all do you right. see the activity going? Well, these are all related. Um, all right, this is a big one where I see the activity going, how about, can I switch it to where would I love and absolutely like just, I would re fall in love with the activity if it went this direction. I would love to see ensembles, full drum corps, indoor lines, high school lines, you name it, that we're all writing our own material. Mm. And I think at that point, um, we don't have to shy away from that word art so much because even even though I say it a lot, I, I I cringe a little bit every time I say it because like art, you know, yeah, it's art, it's art to me, but I, I still have there's something inside me that goes, ugh. So what the what, pretense of the word art or what? Yeah, I think a little bit of that, but also the fact that that you know ninety nine percent of the stuff out there, I pulled that number out of my butt, um, <laughs> is a version of something that's already out there. So what, what if, what would this activity look like if all of the uh, capable ensembles were writing their own stuff? So yeah. everything you hear is something that they created for that particular show. Now, that might not be a reality for a lot of groups, but I would love to see that. That's where I see the activity going. I think, I think it probably is a reality. It just might not be as low a hanging fruit or something. Right. But I would love to see it go that way. And I would like to believe that that's where it's going. 
and it, it might take you know decades, but hey, let's do it. And right. I've been beating that same drum in my world because I feel like um, in the world of producing engineering music and writing songs, the more we use plug-in presets and drum samples that anybody can buy, that's a little bit like the equivalent of pulling from somebody else's um, core content or material and repurposing it um, that you don't know. You know that, like can, you said, that can be really cool, by the way. So I'm not, it's not a, no, it can, it's not a criticism of, of that approach because I think that is kind of clever when you can take something and, and unpack it and make it your oh, own. For sure. Yeah. There's an art to that. Just like Frank Sinatra wasn't a songwriter. He's, he was a you know, interpreter, right. a vocal interpreter. Right, right, so right. there's definitely validity to it. But I do think that um, when you do kind of put some limits on yourself, like, oh, the, there's nothing and all the something that is, is going to come from these people that we know, the people in this room or the people within our circle I think inevitably you're going to, people will make creative decisions that are rooted in their attachment. Cause I think you, you're more attached to music that you've created and that you know where it came from and it came from nowhere as opposed to, um, you know, looking outward and cherry picking it. It's a little bit more of an external process of, okay, what are we going to do with that? Let's have a meeting. Let's talk. Let's brainstorm. Okay, cool. This would be good. And it, it, you're starting off on a foot of, standing on the shoulders of somebody else's work and the end result is different better worse doesn't matter but i think you would probably end up with maybe more who knows what results you know you might end up with the plain floor and no props more readily if if you had designed and written a show from the ground up that happened to be so minimalistic that that's what you wanted i don't know there's something about starting from nothing and having to make the everything yourself or within your group that I think just leads to a different end result that's inevitably more surprising. I don't know. Um, what was the second Oh, the second part of, part of that question? question? Props are getting bigger. We kind of... Oh, yeah. So how about Ayala a couple years ago? I can't remember exactly what year or what the name of the show was, but um, they had no props. In fact, they they played the same, are pretty close to the same piece of music twice and interpreted it differently, visually, um, mm. front to back. I thought it was a super creative show, um, pretty clever. Uh, I think there's room for that. I, I, I wouldn't say that a group can't be successful without props. Um, How much do you, our finances going to hold groups back? I think where we're going to see um, outdoor where we're going to see the, uh, well, outdoor in quotations, like uh, drum corps, uh-huh. it, it ends up in indoor uh, at the end of the season at Lucas Oil. But um, I think where you're going to see the biggest uh, spread between the haves and the haves not, have-nots are the, uh, the sound system. Mm. The fact that um, trying to push all that sound up to the top of the stadium um, acoustically is just, it's just not possible at the... That the type of presence that we're expecting mm-hmm. um, at the top of the stands that the fans are expecting is not possible acoustically. So you're going to see, um, I think, a big divide happen in, in the type of sound gear that we're bringing out. Less less to do with props, more about sound gear. Mm. What was the next question? Luckily, that stuff's getting more and more affordable and better for the price, I guess, too. Yeah, hopefully. Technology. Hopefully, yeah. Um, 
That was the end of it. But there was an addition. Okay. He replied to his own question because he had more things to, to add. And I like this. It seems a little bit aimed towards the um, beyond marching arts too. Um, and for the other side, is it possible for someone to produce and write music successfully in the industry without having expensive equipment? How much does equipment affect the final product? Well, the good news is that we've reached a point now where the the digital technology, especially for modeling the things that used to be insanely expensive, <laughs> you know, whether it's um, one of the examples that always comes to my mind is there's a compressor called the Fairchild. And old compressor, I think famous for being used in the 60s. It was invented for uh, broadcast audio to just kind of level um, dynamically the audio. And the components were so amazing and people loved it on recording. So anyways, this this if you wanted to go out and buy a compressor that was made back then, a Fairchild, it would be 30, 40 grand now. And so one channel, couple knobs and a switch or two, like not even that much control. It's just, it does a thing that's magic. And um, a, a bunch of different manufacturers have accurately... Um, modeled that piece of gear. The one my favorite is the Puig Child. That's why he calls it the Puig Child because it's the Fair Child, but Jack Joseph Puig made it, so he threw his name in there. And so there is, if you know what you're doing and you're using your your ears, the you can get really great results with without a ton of money. But I believe that it takes a lot of discipline. Yeah, I, to get the results that really transcend, you have to, I think, use those tools in a very responsible way and not fall victim to sort of the, like I said, just presets and stock drum sounds and these things that are so easy to do. It's easy to get a product that sounds professional on some level, but whenever you do that, you remove, whenever you use like a pre um, a predetermined, process which is what a preset can be a preset can be a good learning tool and sometimes can work but in general to to really go through the go through the steps it takes to really learn what an eq does what a compressor does what each knob how it affects the emotion of the sound and um to actually know how to use it and to take the time to maybe make your own samples and all this stuff you end up with just more tools at your disposal to create what you're creating so if, if somebody else is using all presets and all store-bought samples and just throwing them up there, but they wrote a great song, they're missing out on the opportunity to, to write the great song, but also express themselves artistically with regards to every choice and every plug-in and every drum sound and every guitar sound and every bass sound. Like When you add all those choices, you get a more complex and original, authentic final result. And when you remove them, you're just making it harder for you to stand out and do something unique. So yes, you can, there's a lot of gear out there. It's just use it, use it wisely. And I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. This has been awesome. Thanks for checking it out. Thanks for listening, getting back on board or on board for the first time. Good night and good morning.